Can you hear me? Nope. Check, check, check. Nothing. I can be real loud. We good? All right. So, a couple announcements. Uh, we have a potluck today, in case you didn't notice when you walked in. If you didn't bring something too bad, you can't join us. No, 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 no. There's a ton of food. A ton. I saw it. Okay? Stay. Even if you didn't bring something, stay. Enjoy some food with us. Get to know some people. It'll be great. Um, second thing, a couple weeks, two weeks from now, we have a members meeting. Um, if you're a member, come to that. If you're not a member, I still would encourage you to come to that and hear what's going on around here. So, um, that's that. All right. So, a little update. If you were here last week, I tried to put these micro Legos together with my kids and failed. So, uh, here's what happened. Um, we got that picture here. Here we go. So, this is my brother-in-law, Jared, who was here last week, and he is a genius, and he figured out how to use these terrible instructions to uh, put it together, and he got the bear together, and then he taught uh, gave, I think, Joy, my daughter Joy, uh, a couple hints, and she took it from there, and Brandon jumped in, and they got the ram done too, and I had nothing to do with it. So I don't know if that speaks more to um, their creativity or my impatience. Uh, you be the judge. But it got taken care of, and uh, here's the point. Um, instructions are, are really critical to building anything. And blueprints or instructions are really critical to building a church family. And we're going through 1 Timothy, and we started last week. And it's full of helpful, critical instructions for God's family. Which is great, because we are a church family. So, just by way of review, we saw last week what Timothy's job description. Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus, and Paul is writing to him. And saying, hey, here, here's what you should do. And he's saying, you need to instruct God's plan in love. So let me just read, if you have a Bible with you, 1 Timothy 1, 3-5, just to show you what we covered last week. We covered the first five verses. So 1 Timothy 1, verse 3, it says, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. We went through that last week. You just boil it down. Timothy is supposed to instruct God's plan in love. And so now, our passage for today, 1 Timothy 1, verses 6 through 11, verse 6 starts like this. It says, Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. So the question is, what are these? Well, we found out what those were last week. Some, have be some people have departed from instructing God's plan in love particularly from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So we're today going to learn about these false teachers and their methods, and we're going to see the critical errors of false teachers. But I want to look at it inverted today. Instead of going, man, what are critical errors of false teachers? Because we really focused on that last week, and we're going to see a ton more about false teachers in coming weeks in 1 Timothy, I want to look at it inverted 
and ask this. What are the crucial marks of solid teachers? Okay? Because we can learn that by seeing what critical errors of false teachers are. And specifically, what are the crucial marks of solid gospel teachers? Now again, I want to train you not to first see the book of 1 Timothy as a litmus test for me and other people who teach the Bible, although you should do that. I want to teach you to first test yourself with it as you teach others God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ and teach other people about God. See, it's important that you teach the gospel solidly to your kids, to your coworkers, to your friends. In fact, the everyday teaching of people about Jesus is what people often hear clearest and loudest in their life. Is it not? See, what I'm saying here this morning, what I'm doing here this morning only goes so far. But as you rub shoulders with other people and tell them about Christ and share his word with them, it often goes much farther and has a greater effect. So especially if you are a parent, I want you to feel the weight of that responsibility. You may feel like your kids are not listening to you. I'm sure that happens a lot, right? You may feel like they're not listening to you, but the things you are teaching them, good or bad or otherwise, reverberate into the coming years and decades of their lives. And I can attest to that a thousand times over. So, what are the crucial marks of solid gospel teaching? What are we aiming for? Let's look at verses 6 through 11. I'll read that for us. 1 Timothy 1 verse 6. Some have departed from these, from instructing God's plan in love, and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, though they don't understand what they're saying or what they're insisting on. But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and males who have sex with males, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. So the first crucial mark of a solid gospel teacher is that they use the, that is that the law is used as a mirror, not a bat. I'll explain that more in a minute. But the turning point in this passage is in verse 9. The first part of verse 9. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person. That begs the question, who is a righteous person? What we see over and over again in Scripture, particularly in Romans 3, no one is righteous. No, not one. Apart from Christ, no one is. Therefore, the law, God's commands, are meant for everyone. All of us, apart from Christ, are unrighteous, which just means we're not right. We're not right in standing before God. Now, it would be easy to read the rest of verses 9 and 10 and feel beat down by Paul as you read that list. But Paul isn't using these laws as a bat to beat you down. That's not why he used them. You missed the context if you think that. 
He started by leveling the playing field, by going, all are not righteous. So Paul himself is saying, apart from the grace of God, I am not right either before God. If Paul wanted to use the law as a bat to beat you over the head, he would have done it. He would have been like, you all are dirty, rotten sinners, and I'm not. And he would have sat on his high horse, but he doesn't. Next week, we're going to see in verse 15, he calls himself the worst of sinners. Paul, writer of much of the New Testament, calls himself the worst of sinners. More on that next week, but for now, just notice his approach. He's not, he's not taking these laws as a bat. He's, he's actually taking the approach of a mirror. So let me, let me show you what I mean. So if you take a bat, and I wanted a, a nice wooden Louisville slugger, but we don't have those around our house yet for good reason. Um, but pretend it's, it's you know, a real solid bat here. And if I just decided I was going to write your sins on this bat, go, oh, it's a liar. He cheats from time to time. You know, if I just put your sins on here and just came up to you and just started wailing on you, you know, just, just started hitting you and beating you to a pulp. See, here's, here's the deal. You would know that you were a sinner if I did that, but it would stop right there. You wouldn't be able to breathe long enough to see that there's hope. It, it's not just that you are a sinner. You are, and I am. But it doesn't have to stay that way. You don't have to stay locked up and beat up by your sin. And so Paul is using this rather as a mirror. A mirror is designed for who? It's designed for the person looking into it. You don't need a mirror to see me. You see me clearly. I need a mirror to see myself, first and foremost. And so Paul that's what he's doing here. He is taking the law, God's good commands, and he's, he is holding that mirror up in verses 9 and 10, and he is clearly looking at it himself first, and he continues to look at it, but then he invites us to look into it, and Timothy to look into it, and he invites anyone else Timothy is teaching to look into this mirror of God's laws and go, oh wow, I'm not measuring up. And as we do that, we see that we are not righteous. We're not right. But why would he do that? Why would, what's the difference between that and getting beat up by the bat? The difference is that as you look into a mirror and you see your faults, you see the rules, you go, oh wow, I fall short, therefore I need a savior. I need Jesus. That's why Paul is doing this. Warren Wearsby puts it this way. The lawful use of the law is to expose, restrain, and convict the lawless. The law cannot save lost sinners. It can only reveal their need for a savior. So Paul holds up God's laws from the Old Testament in verses 9 and 10 so that people would see that they desperately need Jesus. And that list in verses 9 through 10, if you look at it, it has strong notes of the Ten Commandments from Exodus. The, the order even flows like the Ten Commandments, starting with sins that are directly against God to ones that are against other people as well. But when Jesus raises the bar on the Ten Commandments in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, where he says 
things like, hey, if you even look lustfully at someone, if you even think lustfully in your heart about someone, then it's like committing adultery. It says things like that and raises the bar on the Old Testament laws. Jesus wasn't doing that to club people over with a bat. He was doing it to hold up a mirror so that people would go, wow, I need him. I need Christ. Now, Paul mentions specific sins that were common in Ephesus at the time. Remember, he's writing to Timothy, who is, who is overseeing the churches. He's pastoring the church in Ephesus at that time. And remember, Ephesus is like a modern-day New York City. It's a melting pot of cultures and religions and all sorts of things. And Paul gives us a window into what society was like at the time in the things he includes in this list. And often when, when we think about ancient cultures, we can be guilty of thinking, wow, you know, it's way worse today than it was back then. I, I guarantee it was way worse today. Not so fast. They were killing their parents, according to this list. Okay? So if you, if you want to get real here, that life was probably not that much worse back then. It's just that we can post it everywhere in a second. Okay? But this society was, was pretty messed up. And the law here... Paul pointing out these laws was not for him to go, hey, here's a list of do's and don'ts so, you know, so that you can feel hopeless and criticized like a bat. No, the law, Paul's using it here as a tool, as a mirror that reveals that we need a Savior. We need Jesus. So when we teach and explain God's commands, and standards, his law, verses 9 and 10, things like that, which we do need to teach our kids and teach other people as we tell them about God. We should ask ourselves, though, are we saying, you're not good enough, so try harder? Because that's the bat. Or are we saying, we're all not good enough, so trust the Savior? We can do this in several different ways. We can do this by humbling ourselves and sharing our own struggles first. This levels the playing field. I've done this before. I can think within the last year, um, going to a men's group, we were praying for each other and sharing what we needed prayer for. And I said, in my mind this week, I've had some lustful thoughts. And so can you pray for me that I wouldn't act on those? You might be thinking, the pastor did? Yes. Yes, he did. I'm not acting on them. But apart from the grace of Jesus, I would be. And then apart from the community around me, helping me and holding me accountable and praying for me and helping me hold up that mirror and go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where that leads. That leads, that leads to places I don't want to go and where Jesus doesn't want me to go. So this is what we should do with one another. We shouldn't, we shouldn't hide behind, I'm doing great, you know, behind platitudes, behind just glossing things over in our lives. Instead, we should humble ourselves and share our own struggles honestly with one another. That is how we can level the playing field and, and have it be, have God's laws be a mirror, not a bat we're beating other people up with. Another way we can do this is by having a humble attitude. The classic author G.K. 
Chesterton had this attitude because when he was asked what's wrong with the world, he said, I am. I am. He didn't go, they are, and that system is, and this thing over here is. No, I am. See, that may be true, that all of these other things are what's wrong with the world, but ultimately it's me because I am sinful. We also can do this by by emphasizing the Savior and highlighting His grace more than sin. Now, we definitely need the mirror of God's law to see our sin and God's good commands. But then we need to focus in on Jesus. We need to talk about Him and how crazy patient He is with us. We need to talk about how unthinkably forgiving He is. We need to talk about how perfectly just He is in an unjust world. We need to talk about how surprisingly gentle He is with us. A great question for us to ask as we teach others about Jesus is this. Do they walk away from my teaching with just a better understanding of God's rules? Because if so, you miss the whole point. That's the bat. Or do they walk away with a better understanding of God's heart? See, that is the mirror that helps us actually get to know God in relationship. And certainly, getting to know God's heart, part of that is learning His good rules and law. But if that's all they learn, is the X, Y, Z, the Ten Commandments, we're just teaching them to be good rule followers, not to actually follow Christ. A good question as you parent as well. Do they just understand your rules? And believe me, especially when they're young, that's fine for a while. But as they start to grow up and you parent your kids, are they understanding the why? Do they also understand your heart for them and God's heart? Where did you even get those rules? I got them from this in God's word. Like, Are you showing them the why? Are you sharing with them the why? And the law's role in a believer's life should be a mirror, not a bat as well. It's good to have our sin exposed and revealed. And it's good because then we run to Jesus for help and hope and for freedom. It's not a bat to club ourselves or other people with. It's a mirror to help make us more like Jesus, to help us fall more in love with Jesus and less in love with sin because that is not who we are. It isn't that we don't sin. It's just not our identity anymore. Which leads to my next point. The second crucial mark of a solid gospel teaching we see in this scripture is that the gospel is used as a critical lens, not a trendy accessory. I'll show you what I mean. Let me read the passage again. 1 Timothy 1, 6 through 11. Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitful discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, 
for murderers, for the sexually immoral, and males who have sex with males, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. So let me show you this in the text. In verse 8, it says, Provided someone uses the law legitimately. How do you use the law, God's commands, legitimately? Verse 11, it conforms to the gospel. It conforms to the gospel. The gospel used legitimately is a lens to view the law. See, the proper lens, the gospel, will say this. Hey, if you are in Christ, you are forgiven and you have Christ's perfect record, his right record, his righteousness. Therefore, I obey. You obey then from forgiveness, not for forgiveness. Do you hear what I'm saying? The difference is subtle, but it makes all the difference in the world. You are not trying to get forgiveness and acceptance and love from God. You can't. That's why he came and died for us and rose from the dead. Instead, we go, wow, he did that for me, so now I'm going to live from that forgiveness and from that acceptance. It's like a prescription lens glasses. So if you have glasses and they have a good prescription lens in them, they will help you see things clearly, like you have 20-20 or even better vision than that. A gospel prescription lens helps us see God's laws as helpful instructions instead of seeing them as a pass-fail test. See, the test is already passed because of Christ's work on our behalf. It isn't some like, oh man, I better get 100% or I'm going to hell. That's, that is not the gospel. The laws are helpful instructions for life lived now with Jesus. It's our response. A gospel prescription lens keeps us from trusting in godly achievements or quote-unquote godly achievements. A gospel prescription lens helps us focus on Christ who gave us the strength to even live out anything godly, to do anything godly. In Jeremiah, it says that even our best works are like filthy rags. Pastor Ray Ortland says it this way, if evil were the color yellow, like police tape at a crime scene, then everything about us all the time at all levels would show some shade of yellow. Even our good moments glow yellowish. When we have a gospel lens on, it's not about me, it's not about you, it's not about our achievements because our best efforts are still yellowish. It's about his efforts for me and my response to them in obedience. A gospel prescription lens protects us from staying down about our failures as well. Now certainly we should mourn over our sin because it breaks our father's heart. But to stay there is completely forgetting the good news of Jesus Christ. There's a song called Gyra by Elevation Worship. And there's a line in there that says, I've never been more loved than I am right now. 
And I've just been clinging to that lately, and I encourage you to do the same. I've never been more loved than I am right now. See, some of you need to forgive yourself for some things that have long past been forgiven by Jesus. Some of you know you've been forgiven by Christ, but you don't know it because you haven't forgiven yourself and you beat yourself up for it every day. And Jesus is going, let it go. Put on a gospel lens and see that you're free. In verse 7 in this text, These false teachers didn't understand what they were saying or insisting on. It says they want to be teachers of the law, though they don't understand what they're saying or what they're insisting on. See, these false teachers were teaching what I would call Jesus plus. Jesus plus. So in order to be saved, you must trust in Jesus, plus you better do X, Y, and Z, or you're going to hell. They may not say it like that, but that's what ends up coming across. And that's what they were teaching. See, it's not possible to do that. We we cannot obey God's laws perfectly. And so when you treat the gospel like Jesus plus, you're treating it like a trendy accessory instead of a critical lens. Here's what I mean. These don't have a lens in them. All right? I put these on. They do nothing for me. They look, make me look pretty cool. I mean, they are kids' sunglasses that are too short and cost like five cents. So I'm sure they make me look real cool. But they do nothing to help my vision. Now, here's the thing. If this is you, if you, if you wear glasses with a fake lens or no lens, totally cool with that. No judgment, all right? Keep doing your thing, all right? Not trying to make any... any uh, sweeping judgments here on that. But here's my point. Jesus is not an add-on or a trendy accessory. See, every other religion in the world says, do. Try harder. Work harder. Pray more. Try, try, chant, pray, meditate, try some more. But Jesus says, done. It's all done. You're invited into a relationship that's not pointless ritual. You are given a gospel lens that has to be worn always when we look at the laws of God. And without it, we start to treat Jesus' sacrifice as a nice add-on, like a trendy accessory. Jesus didn't die to be a nice, trendy accessory in your life. He died to give us purpose and joy in our lives. He died to give us meaning and peace in our obedience to his laws. The gospel is a critical lens, not a trendy accessory. So let me declutter my stand for a second. And now I want to address, before we close, the elephant in the room. Verse 10, it says, males who have sex with males, or other translations, homosexuals. Let me start by saying that I've studied this phrase and this verse and every other verse in the New Testament that has this word in it. And it means what it says. And there's no getting around it. Period. I wrote a whole paper in seminary going through all of the arguments of 
why these verses could mean something else, and then countering them. Very nerdy. If, you would, if that would um, interest you, I'd be happy to send that to you. Um, I, I also would recommend to you, maybe slightly less nerdy, is the Cornerstone Equip podcast, which I've mentioned before, but Mark Vance, um, who is the lead pastor at Cornerstone, um, and they planted our church, by the way, and verse, uh, episodes 143 to 145, which was in like September or October of 2022 of this past year, he does a phenomenal job in layman's terms, just laying out all of the things around this topic. But I'm just going to boil it down and, and tell you it means what it says. Second, let me say this. This is not anywhere close to the main focus of this scripture, which is why I haven't brought it up till now. People look at this scripture and automatically see it and go, ah! And I'm like, yeah, what, what is Paul saying, though? Let's, let's get to the scripture. So I want to start there. I want to show you how to apply the main points of Paul in this scripture to help you teach others about and walk alongside others who struggle with homosexuality, or if perhaps you yourself struggle yourself. So, the first thing we saw is that the law should be used as a mirror, not a bat. So, don't treat people differently who struggle with homosexual sin than people who struggle with heterosexual sin, or, or lying, or you name the sin. Quit treating it differently. God forgive us, and by us I mean the church, the capital C, followers of Christ in general for doing this. Often in very cringy ways. I had a friend who, who really struggled with same-sex attraction following Christ. And I felt really ill-equipped and overwhelmed to help him out, but he asked me to help him. But guess what? I found out that it was no different than helping out anyone else with any other struggle. He asked me to call him every morning, hold him accountable and pray with him, and encourage him. I did that for like a month straight, every morning. And it was really helpful to him. And I grew a lot too, and it was really helpful to me. See, it's not, it's not rocket science. We think that, oh man, I don't really know that. You know, how am I going to help? I think you understand sin a little bit, though. You've struggled with it yourself. Just walk alongside them. He needed, my friend needed Jesus in the flesh. Be that for people, regardless of what they're struggling with. If you can do this, if we can do this, people will see that God's clear laws, like the one in verse 10, it's actually just a mirror to point us to Christ, not a bat. The second point from the scripture we saw today is that the gospel is a critical lens, not a trendy accessory. So the gospel helps us not just add Jesus to look good to our sinful lifestyle, right? So the gospel says you are not the same. You have a new identity. You are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. We are called to put off sin. But we don't do it to earn anything. But we do it to be who we are. We are God's children. We just sang that. I'm a child of God. You, if you are in Christ, you are God's children. You're not sin's children, so don't act like it. 
Don't live like it. So, we must not do what way too many churches and denominations have done and abandon God's clear commands on homosexuality. It is sinful. And it's not God's design for our flourishing. Embracing this lifestyle is treating Jesus as a trendy accessory. You're not treating him as king. You're not treating him as Lord. And that's what he invites us to do. Let me put it like this. I had someone ask me one time, Hey, Matt, if I follow Christ, do I have to give up drinking? I thought... I thought, and I answered something like this, not near as polished because I got to prepare for this. But I said, certainly Jesus asks us to give up things in our lives when we follow him. But I'm, and I'm certain that Jesus in time will ask you to put the bottle down more and more. But you're looking at it from the wrong angle. See, if you follow Jesus, he will actually give you what you were looking for from the alcohol all along. You're looking for him. You're looking for relationship with Jesus. You're looking for joy that's only found in Jesus. You're looking for satisfaction and peace and love and acceptance that actually can only be found in one person, and that's Jesus Christ, not in any substance, not in any lifestyle. Not in any sexual encounters or activities. So, when you are teaching others about homosexuality, or if you're wrestling with it yourself, or teaching others about any other law or sin, or wrestling with it yourself, help them realize that Jesus is actually inviting you into something way better than that. And Jesus will walk alongside them every step of the way. And you can tell them too, and so will I. I'm going to walk alongside you as well. And if you choose to do so, it's actually a life and an eternity far better than any other. That, that is how we should go about treating this hot button topic in our culture. Let me end with this. Warren Wearsby says, Law and gospel go together. For the law without the gospel is diagnosis without remedy. But the gospel without law is only the good news of salvation for people who don't believe they need it because they have never heard the bad news of judgment. The law is not gospel, but the gospel is not lawless. I think that's a great way to sum this whole thing up. So, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. And I thank you for your commands, for your law. I pray that you would help us to use it correctly in our own lives. And as we help others follow Christ, that we would use it as a mirror. And we would use it on ourselves first. And we wouldn't beat people up over the head and God I thank you for the reality that you actually invite us into something way better than any sin could ever offer us we thank you for the joy and satisfaction that is only found in relationship with you Jesus and pray even as we sing here this morning 
that we would relish and enjoy the fact that you care about us more than we could imagine and that we've never been more loved than we are right now. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.